Three, out of the beaten track, before the railroad, 1815 to 1850. The village of Koknawaga consists of a church, a house for the missionary who resides with them, and about 140 others, principally built of stone formed into two or three rows, something resembling streets, but not at all to be remarked either for interior or exterior cleanliness or regularity. Their occupants may be altogether about 900, who chiefly derive a subsistence from the produce of their cornfields and rearing some poultry and hogs, sometimes assisted by fishing and the acquisitions of their hunting parties, which, however, they do not, as in an uncivilized state, consider their principal employment. Notwithstanding the remote period when their ancestors were induced to abandon their forest and the barbarous customs of savage life and the present inoffensive demeanor of their offspring, they have not yet acquired the regularity of habit and patient industry that are necessary to the complete formation of civilized society, nor indeed will the hopes of those who have had opportunities to observe the peculiarities of their character and try them by the opinions of philosophers and humanists ever be very sanguine that longer time or greater exertion will effect a more radical conversion. To prevent a falling off from the improvement already made is perhaps as much as may reasonably be looked for. That the fierce and restless spirit of the wandering savage has been tamed into something like docility cannot be denied. As a proof, it may be adduced that some of the men of this village, and also some of those of the village of Two Mountains, have lately been employed as auxiliaries of the British Army. And during the periods of their service, no difficulty has been found in bringing them under strict subjection or confining their operations within the laws of modern warfare. Joseph Bouchette, 1815 Shortly after the War of 1812, the prominent cartographer and surveyor Joseph Bouchette, also Surveyor General of British North America, described Gahnawage as a quiet village inhabited by docile but only partially civilized savages. In the passage quoted above, he seems conflicted about Gahnawage. On the one hand, its residents met some of his criteria for civilization, agriculture, inoffensive demeanor, obedience. But on the other hand, they had not yet acquired the regularity of habit and patient industry that he believed necessary for civilized life. In other words, they did not resemble the fearsome Indians of his imagination who instilled so much terror in his ancestors. Yet they still were not white people, and their difference repulsed him. Finally, he showed his deeply anti-Indigenous ideology, even compared to many of his contemporaries, when he expressed pessimism about the possibility of further civilizing them. The best he felt one could hope for was to prevent a falling off from the improvement already made. At first glance, Bouchette's description appears to be a factual account of the village. Its tone is self-confident, scientific, and objective. However, a closer look reveals that it is far from objective. Bouchette waffles between assumptions about the inevitability of progress, they have not yet acquired the regularity of habit, 
and his certainty that indigenous people can never really be civilized, that docility and obedience are the best that can be hoped for. His tone is distant, but judgmental, morally certain, but practically unsure, paternalist, but uncaring. Although Bouchette did not work professionally in Indian affairs, his tone was typical of imperial elites around the world of the time. It was not reserved only for indigenous people, but it certainly defined the communications of the Indian department in the 19th century and found its way into every part of the indigenous colonial relationship. This chapter reveals some aspects of how this colonial relationship came to be. This chapter covers the period after the War of 1812 and before the passage of the first Indian laws in Canada, which saw a massive influx of white settlers into indigenous lands and a relative steep decline in the power, influence, and wealth of those nations vis-à-vis settler states. For many indigenous people living in proximity to white settlers, this was a time of unprecedented poverty and crisis. Most colonial officials came to see indigenous people as an inevitably dying race and a financial drain on government coffers. Of course, there was little inevitable or natural about the settler invasion, although it no doubt seemed that way to those who participated in it. The European global land grab and unprecedented settler population booms on newly seized lands led directly to indigenous poverty and death. The situation was less dire in Gahnawage due to its proximity to Montreal, its relatively stable agricultural economy, and its well-established involvement in colonial economic enterprises such as the fur and lumber trades. But Gahnawage Hironu during this period saw some ominous signs pointing to the growing power imbalance. This chapter begins with a selective history of the early colonial Indian department and its impact on indigenous communities, then describes Gahnawage land law and practices during this period. It includes a short discussion of the emerging problem of citizenship, who had the right to live in Gahnawage and belong to the nation, and who had the right to make that determination. I end the chapter by considering other land-related conflicts of the early century, which leads into Chapter 4 and the period of railroads, industrialization, and new colonial Indian legislation. The Department of Indian Affairs and Indian Policy to 1850 The Indian Department began the 19th century as a branch of the military, assigned the responsibility of maintaining diplomatic relations with indigenous military allies. By mid-century, it would be transformed into a civilian department tasked with protecting First Nations from harmful influences while also facilitating their assimilation, destruction of their peoplehood. The department thus began the century as an agency designed to serve the needs and demands of First Nations to maintain their loyalty. But 50 years later, its mandate was explicitly both to protect them and eradicate them as a people. Following the upheaval of the War of 1812 and the rapid influx and growth of settler populations, First Nations in Upper and Lower Canada experienced a decided decline in political influence, one that was directly related to their diminishing demographic and military weight. They still played a significant role during the rebellions of 1837 and 1838. 
and their involvement on behalf of the Crown briefly improved some treaty relationships, as historian Nathan Ince shows. However, the general trend over the first half of the 19th century was that colonial governments perceived First Nations increasingly less as important military allies or threats, and simultaneously more as financial burdens. It was for this reason that the Indian Department would become part of the civilian administration. The new civilian department was funded almost entirely by the sale of Indian land, which was clearly at odds with its stated goal of protecting First Nations. But selling off Indigenous lands, and thus eliminating Indigenous access to the same, was certainly in line with the department's assimilative civilization agenda. Responding to calls that the department be abolished, Deputy Superintendent Henry C. Darling argued in 1828 that maintaining it would save the government money in the long run. Since Indigenous people would lose their lands in any case, Darling suggested that the department could at least help them assimilate while they went through the dispossession process. Without the department, Darling warned, they would either become more dependent on the government or would turn to violence, both expensive outcomes. He thus argued that maintaining the Indian department was money well spent because its presence would head off the possibility of even larger expenditures. At the same time, the department began to de-emphasize its former mission of maintaining good relations through the distribution of presence, focusing instead on its civilizing agenda. This meant sponsoring missionaries and schools and encouraging Indigenous men to become farmers. As early as 1829, boys from Gahnawage were admitted to a school in Shadagi as boarders, where they learned certain farming skills. This was made possible through government grants. As Rudinashuni in the British sphere of influence lost territory, wealth, and standing after the War of 1812, many in American-occupied territory had it even worse. The 1815 peace and the 1825 completion of the Erie Canal facilitated a massive influx of settlers into upstate New York and American authorities did little to stop them from squatting on Radhanasuni land and illegally exploiting their small remaining territories. Due to genocidal settler violence and immense pressure from land companies, speculators, collaborating officials, and all levels of government, a number of Radhanasuni communities had no option but to sell their lands and move elsewhere. In British-occupied territory, colonial officials also tried to move Indigenous people away from valuable agricultural land, from southern Ontario to Manitoulin Island in Lake Huron, but with relatively little enthusiasm compared to their U.S. counterparts. Large Rudinasuni communities such as Akwazasne, Six Nations of the Grand River, and Tayandanega were able to remain in place, but they lost much of their land during this period. Between 1820 and 1835, Tayandanega was reduced from 175,000 to 94,000 acres. In the decades leading to 1841, settlers appropriated 95% of the territory of Six Nations of the Grand River, leaving that community with only 55,000 acres. The pre-1850 dispossession in Gahnawage occurred in stages. As we saw in Chapter 1, first, Jesuit missionaries conceded most of the seigneury to French farmers, 
Second, British authorities accepted these illegal concessions as legitimate. Third, colonial agents tasked with collecting rent on behalf of Ghanawa Gehronu did so inconsistently, and authorities did not effectively respond to the concerns of Ghanawage chiefs about the situation. Meanwhile, throughout all periods in question, farmers and administrators were busy moving boundary markers on all sides of the seigneury to increase their holdings at the expense of Ghanawage. Finally, the abolition of the seigneurial system in the 1850s separated conceded lands from the rest of the seigneury and deprived Gahnawage of seigneurial rents. Gahnawage Hirono were well aware of the dispossession experienced by other Rudinashuni communities, as well as policy changes at the Indian Department. They traveled far and wide in North America and beyond, participated in the fur and lumbering trades, and regularly shared information with indigenous people from around the continent. They knew their nationhood and land base were in jeopardy, but their range of alternative options was shrinking as the century progressed. Land Law and Practice As part of its civilizing mission, the Indian Department intended to inculcate colonial notions of private property into Indigenous people. As early as 1839, it offered to have the unconceded portion of Gahnawage territory subdivided. It wished to survey the reserve so that each head of household would be apportioned to a lot of 30 to 50 arpents. An arpent is about 0.845 acres, or 3,419 square meters. The chiefs politely declined the offer, pointing out that most of the desirable land was already individually owned. Chief Zawanoyane explained that Gahnawage would have been more open to such a survey at an earlier date, when much of the land was still forested. But, now that most of the good land was cleared and become private or individual property, it would be impossible to lay out a farm of 100 arpents without taking in several possessions. Zawanoyane also objected to the survey because he believed that many of the young men to whom uncleared land might be apportioned would sell the timber growing thereon and then abandon the lands. Even had the department's plan been feasible, Zawanoyane could see that such a subdivision would undermine community cohesion and stability. A few years later, in the context of an 1846 boundary dispute, the chiefs and warriors of Gahnawage again declared that the entire territory was already divided between families and that it was well used. Another 42 years would pass before the Indian Department finally succeeded in its bid to impose a subdivision against the wishes of the nation. Chapter 6 Most good land was indeed individually owned, but not according to colonial legal logics and the meaning of land ownership was continually contested in Gahnawage. Certain Gahnawage Hironu were dissatisfied with Gahnawage law in regard to owning and managing land, so they hired notaries to draw up deeds for their lands similar to what their settler neighbors had. They then proceeded to buy and sell these plots among themselves to the chagrin of many of their neighbors. In 1827, a Gahnawage Hironu named Gaihonade, Michel Pertuis, petitioned Lord Dalhousie, governor of British North America, for a piece of land. 
He specified that he wanted to own it like a white settler and to leave it to his children on his death. That, in imitation of the Canadian habitants, your supplicant wants to establish himself in a stable and permanent manner by procuring a lot of land appropriate to his work and industry, and for the needs and sustenance of his family, not just during his lifetime, but after his death. There's no evidence that Dalhousie ever read his petition, but Gaihanade's approach to acquiring land was in contrast to those of Araquande and Delorimier, discussed in Chapter 2. They had pushed the boundaries of Gahnawage law to enrich themselves and had then fought in colonial courts to keep the lands they acquired. The arguments in court on both sides concerned different interpretations of Gahnawage law. By contrast, Gaihonade made no mention of Gahnawage legal orders. In fact, he wanted a lot, which measured three arpents by 25 to 30 arpents, to be conceded to him in the seigneurial tradition, so that he became a sensitaire like his French-Canadian neighbors. One can imagine a number of good reasons why Gaihonade wanted to own and farm a large lot under the same conditions as French-Canadians. It is also understandable that the chiefs unanimously opposed him. Jesuit missionaries had conceded most of Gahnawage territory in just the way that Gaihanade asked, and Gahnawage leaders had been trying for decades to ensure that no more was lost in that way. Chapter 1 A key concern of the chiefs, according to Indian agent Duncan Campbell Napier, was that granting Gaihanade his wish would establish a precedent for similar claims from many other individuals of their tribe, which, if permitted, might lead to the dissolution of their common property. Although such a land grant would clearly have interested some Gahnawage individuals, the chiefs were unwilling to carve up their common lands because doing so would weaken their nation. This is not to imply that Gaihonade cared nothing for his nation. He obviously did. Indeed, he turned down a seigneurial concession near Sorel, a hundred kilometers from Gahnawage, because, according to Napier, he cannot think of separating from his tribe under any circumstances. It is to be expected that the views of an individual farmer on such a subject might differ markedly from those of a nation's leaders, even if they all cared deeply about their people. In asking for a land grant, Gaihonade argued that much of the territory was uncultivated and going to waste. He claimed that, Within the borders of the fief of Sault St. Louis, there is a large expanse of vacant and uncultivated land, which in its current state is of new use, and brings the tribe or anyone else no profit. So it appears to your supplicant that it would be in the communal profit of the tribe and to the individual advantage of its members, to concede a part of it so it can be cultivated instead of leaving it in its natural, uncultivated state. The chiefs addressed this matter directly when they explained that the petitioner is aware that the only unconceded part of their seigneury is the domain or champ, which has been reserved by their fathers for the free use and advantage of the tribe generally, and that they are in consequence most anxious to preserve this land for their children, free from any encroachment. For the chiefs, the land Gaihonade wanted for himself and his children was not underutilized, but the inheritance of generations of Gahnawage children yet unborn. 
both Gaihonade and the chiefs saw the land as the inheritance of their children, but the chiefs meant the intergenerational inheritance at a community or nation level, whereas Gaihonade meant individual or familial inheritance. Gaihonade was not alone in referring to Gahnawage land as underused. An 1843 report by Joseph Marcou, the priest in Gahnawage, stated that of the 12,400 acres left of the original seigneury, around 10,000 were still in a primitive state. The chiefs did not talk about their land in this way, since they were doing everything possible to keep it from the hands of settlers. In settler colonial discourse, declaring land uncultivated and underused is a powerful argument for dispossession and the imposition of capitalist land markets. Both Marcou and Gaihonade knew this and used the language of unimproved land for their own ends. Gaihonade also asserted in his petition that Ganyonkehaga had sustained themselves since time immemorial, primarily through the hunt thus obscuring the agricultural history of his people. Presumably, he employed these powerful tropes about indigenous people that he knew would resonate with colonial officials. In contrast, other archival data suggests that most arable land in Gahnawage was already under cultivation at the time and that much of the rest was unsuitable for agriculture. Napier's 1845 report quantifies and classifies the 42,336 acres of the seigneury thus. Conceded to Canadians, 15,000 acres. Under Indian cultivation, 2,296 acres. Sugarbush, 1,953 acres. Common near village, 1,500 acres. Irreclaimed swamps, 4,004 acres. Total, 24,753 acres. Residual, 17,583 acres. We do not know how Napier arrived at these numbers, nor is there an explanation of what is meant by 17,580 acres of residual lands. Considering the many uncertainties inherent in these figures, we cannot place too much stock in them. But by looking at various other sources, we can get a general picture of Gahnawage land use at this time. Archival sources differ greatly on how much land was under cultivation and how many people farmed the land. Marcou asserted, in 1836, that Gahnawage men had practically ceased to hunt but still avoided farming. Instead, many of them piloted riverboats and rafts in the summer and sold moccasins, snowshoes, and beadwork in the winter. Marcou saw these men as having a particular aversion to agriculture and to sedentary life in general. His successor, Father T. Eugene Antoine, added that Gahnawage men also showed little inclination toward learning trades that would keep them in the village. Although many Gahnawage men did gravitate toward work that involved travel, early commentators and later scholars stressed this fact to such an extent that few scholars have taken an interest in how Gahnawage Hironu interacted with their land. For example, a statement by historian Gerald Reed that farming in the late 19th century was an economic option, but few pursued it in an important way, is based on a number of such commentators. 
Since most commentators were men who tended to be interested only in the economic activities of men and plow agriculture, the available sources for the period probably underestimate the extent of land that was farmed on a small scale and by women. A good example of the overemphasis on mobile male labor appears in the report generated by a major 1856-1858 inquiry into the operations of the Indian Department, which concluded that Gahnawagehronu were of such mixed descent as scarcely to reckon a single full-blooded individual among their number, retain the aboriginal apathy and disinclination to settled labor of any sort. They still cling to their roving habits, and many of them are voyageurs and canoemen in the employment of the Hudson's Bay Company. A considerable number, too, are occupied during the summer in rafting timber and as pilots through the rapids of the St. Lawrence. The report goes on to claim that they cultivate a limited quantity of land, but most of the reserve which is in their own hands is lying idle, unprofitable alike to themselves and the country at large. Women performed much of the agricultural labor, and it was typical for officials to dismiss this work as unimportant and insubstantial. Similarly, repeated assertions that the land was uncultivated tell us more about the author than about the land and the people who worked on it. It is no accident that discussions of idle lands were often paired with a description of Gahnawagehronu as characterized by an indolence which is natural to them and an apathy which is the greatest obstacle to their advancement and improvement. Contradicting these truisms, as well as his own firm assertions that Gahnawagehronu did not farm, Marcoux estimated in 1843 that the average Gahnawage family cultivated about 10 acres and that a few farmed more than 40. Surprisingly, his account of the typical day of a Gahnawagehronu man included farming. He wrote in 1843, Generally speaking, the Indian begins the day by eating between 8 and 9 o'clock. When the sun begins to throw out its rays, he goes to his field, where he works in the greatest heat until the afternoon. He then returns home to take another meal. In winter, between the morning and the afternoon meals, he goes to cut wood, but when he remains at home, he eats several times a day. No word is found in his tongue for dinner, breakfast, or supper. He always used the expression, to eat. The Indian has no stated number of meals, nor any fixed time for taking them. It all depends on circumstances. Although Marcoux saw farming as a good and civilized profession, his Gahnawage farmer is undisciplined and irrational. He eats his meals at irregular times and works during the heat of the day instead of in the early morning. Like many educated white men of his time, Marcoux interpreted any indigenous difference in behavior as a problem and a defect. Although Gahnawage men generally preferred livelihoods other than farming, many were involved in growing food, at least seasonally. An example of this is found in an 1817 Hudson's Bay Company contract for the employment of nine Gahnawage men on a return trip to Fort William, Thunder Bay. If they are away from their homes for a period lasting more than two months and eight days, the honorable company is obligated to put a man on their land to help with the work up to the moment of his return. 
The seasonal agriculture labor of these men was so valued by their families that the company promised to hire replacement workers if they had not returned by the time of the harvest. The average mid-century Quebec farmer cultivated between 30 and 45 acres, compared to the average Gahnawage farmer's 10 acres. Gahnawage averages were thus decidedly smaller, but nearly every family cultivated plots of land. Of an estimated population of 1,100 in 1843, Marcoux stated that 50 families farmed. It is possible that he was referring to 50 men who farmed on a relatively large scale, incorporating Euro-American techniques and technologies such as field rotation, draft animals, manuring, and harrows. But aside from the 50 families, it is likely that several hundred women and their families also cultivated lands on a smaller scale and using different techniques. After all, Marcoux noted in 1847 that traditional gender roles, although changed, were still in place. Young men plowed and harrowed the fields, but women and old men handled the rest of the agricultural work. He also noted the continued existence of the Gahnawage legal principle that unused land was available to any Gahnawage Hronu who wanted to work it. Small-scale farming and gardening were largely the domain of women, children, and older men, and larger-scale farming was done by a minority of men who had the necessary land and capital, and by a few white farmers who leased land unofficially. But most Gahnawage men, like their ancestors, pursued livelihoods that took them away from the village for long periods. The Rodinashuni community of Akwazasne followed land use and livelihood patterns that resembled those of Gahnawage. The Indian agent there, Solomon Chesley, stated in 1834 that the majority of Akwazasne farmers were women. In his account, many of the men worked as boaters in the summer while the women cultivated the fields. In her work on Six Nations of the Grand River, another large Rodinashuni community, historian Susan Hill, discusses changes and continuities in gender roles that seem similar to those in Gahnawage. Six nations experienced the devastating trauma of the American War of Independence, followed by the turmoil of relocating from its homelands to what would later become known as Southern Ontario. Hill contextualizes changes in gender roles in light of the adjustments required in the new community. The trauma of war and dispossession, along with harsh new colonial realities, led these Rodinashuni to develop and embrace the Garihuio, good message of Handsome Lake, spiritual tradition. Based on the visions of the Seneca leader Handsome Lake, the Garihuio gave Rodinashuni men divine sanction to become more involved in agriculture, but continued to emphasize the matrilineal and clan-oriented government structure of the great law of peace. By the 1840s, Hill shows heads of household in Six Nations of the Grand River were usually men. The Garihuio did not have a particularly obvious impact in Gahnawage until much later, but the community's trajectory of normalizing patriarchy and private property, while also maintaining certain traditional views and practices, resembled that of Six Nations. Similarly, 
Kahnawake land practices after 1815 can be seen as a continuation of the Rodinashuni tradition, along with the incorporation of certain Euro-Canadian elements. By then, Kahnawake Hironu had fully embraced livestock raising alongside traditional horticulture. Marcou wrote in 1830 that gardens and fields were not fenced, but that the community maintained a fenced common pasture. This suggests that Gahnawage Hironu used fences to keep livestock away from fields and gardens, at least at certain times of the year. Men of the village gathered every summer to spend a few days building and repairing public roads and fences, and chiefs paid for their food and drink from the community purse. The public road bisected the common pasture, so the community employed gatekeepers to ensure that traffic could go through it without allowing animals to escape. The 1858 Special Commissioner's Report into the Affairs of the Indian Department stated that Gahnawage Hironu possessed a very considerable quantity of livestock. It listed 251 cows, 15 oxen, 226 horses, and 517 swine, as well as 119 carts and wagons among the 1,342 counted inhabitants. The village was the largest and one of the best-built Indian settlements in Canada, and its farms produced oats, barley, peas, hay, and wheat. Gahnawage Hironu produced maple sugar to a very considerable extent. In the same report, the new resident priest in Gahnawage, Father Antoine, revealed his ignorance of Rodinashuni history and culture when he claimed that the Indians have been taking an interest, before not known, in agricultural pursuits. The idea that First Nations were beginning to take an interest in agriculture was frequently repeated in Indian department reports over the decades to indicate progress towards assimilative goals. One finds virtually the same sentence in reports written three decades later, and no one in the department seemed to know or care that Rodinashuni had had a keen interest in farming for centuries before Europeans even knew they existed. Instead, we can conclude that Gahnawage Hronu always practiced agriculture, adapted new methods from time to time, and continued to do so after contact with Europeans. In 1815 and 1831, maps of Gahnawage by Surveyor General Joseph Bouchette juxtapose a largely forested and undifferentiated Gahnawage with neatly parceled settler farmland all around. He depicts the only cultivated lands in areas known to be occupied by Gahnawage Hironu as next to main roads. Both maps portray the land in this way. But the 1831 version adds the label Indian Woodlands. The two maps show the areas conceded to French-Canadian farmers within the Seigneurie of Sault Ste. Louis. Both maps are composites, constructed by Bouchette from earlier maps. Considering the lack of accurate maps of Gahnawage and that Bouchette probably never penetrated beyond the main roads shown on his maps, there is no reason to give these descriptions a great deal of credibility as faithful representations of the geography. However, they do show that settlers thought of indigenous lands as underutilized and uncultivated. Settlers seemed unable to perceive indigenous land use, agency, and labor, an inability that, not coincidentally, proved very useful to both them and their governments. Bouchette 
and others like him showed little interest in actual Gahnawage land uses. For example, Gahnawage Hironu valued their ready access to firewood for heating during the long winters and surely did not see their forests as waste. Although outside observers may have constructed such incomplete pictures of Gahnawage because their patriarchal mindset led them to ignore the economic contributions of women and their engagement with the land. Nevertheless, Gahnawage Hironu were clear and consistent in their repeated claims that all of it was theirs to distribute and use according to their own laws and needs. It was becoming more and more difficult, however, to ignore the growing power and influence of colonial ideologies and institutions. One important space in which colonial Canada began to undermine Indigenous sovereignty during this period was the question of belonging and citizenship. Belonging and Land Like all Rodinashuni communities, Gahnawage has a long and proud history of successful adoption and naturalization of outsiders. This success was key to the long-term survival of Rodinashuni against great odds in the 17th and 18th centuries. But issues around belonging, citizenship, and membership became thornier during the 19th century as it became clear that the landlust and colonial mindset of adopted white men could threaten the sovereignty of the nation. The previous chapter touched on questions of inclusion and exclusion in connection with Araquande and Claude Delorimier. Araquande was banished after he repeatedly broke Gahnawage laws, challenged the authority of the chiefs, and sued fellow Gahnawage Hironu in court. No one disputed his rights as long as he adhered to Gahnawage laws, but he refused to do so. In the case of Delorimier, a naturalized citizen who started to abuse his rights almost the moment he received them, the chiefs revoked his rights. But by then, his children were so well established in the community that they managed to retain much of his land. For Gahnawage Hironu, the problem may not have been their rights to reside and own land, but their possession of their father's illegally held properties. The conflict with the Delorimier family alerted Gahnawage Hironu to the fact that outsiders were not being integrated as well as they once had been. Instead of becoming Gahnawage Hironu in their thoughts and behaviors, white men, like Delorimier, who had been adopted into the nation, maintained many of their old ways and made no effort to hide it. Within a few years of their arrival, they could become wealthy at the expense of the community, and their considerable influence presented a challenge to the nation. Not all challengers came from the outside, but Gahnawage Hironu understood that colonial ideas about land and property were incompatible with their own. Many individuals who pushed for drastic reform were adoptees, children of adoptees, or white men who had established themselves with the approval of the Indian Department and sometimes of the chiefs. It is therefore not surprising that their opponents labeled them white men, even if they had once seen them as Indians or Ungwehungwe, true person. Many who wished to maintain the sovereignty of Gahnawage believed that white men like Delorimier were responsible for causing conflicts over land and wood, so an obvious solution was to remove them and to severely restrict the practice of naturalizing white men. 
Until 1850, the colonial government had no legal definition of Indian, and the Indian Department did not concern itself greatly with questions of who belonged to particular Indigenous nations. It expected the nations themselves to determine their citizens according to their own laws. Over time, the department increasingly prioritized this question because keeping the numbers of Indians as low as possible would reduce its expenses. This also aligned well with another goal that emerged with the enfranchisement legislation of the 1860s and the Indian Act of 1876, the elimination of Indigenous nations. During an 1836 discussion about how people in Gahnawage defined Indian, Indian agent James Hughes said that in Gahnawage, all children begotten by Indian parents or an Indian father and a white mother are looked upon as Indians. All children by white men and Indian women are looked upon as whites. On the basis of his experience in Gahnawage, Hughes believed that women who married white men lost their Indian status, but we cannot know if this view represented the community at all. If it did, it represents a major shift from only a few decades earlier when the nation regularly adopted white men. By the 1830s, Gahnawage Hironu had adjusted their legal norms so that white men could no longer gain land rights and Indian status through marriage. With the removal of Jesuit missionaries as land managers and the 1762 Gage decision to end seigneurial land concessions, it became difficult for white men to acquire land in Gahnawage. One of the few avenues was via marriage with a Gahnawage woman, and many Gahnawage Hronu were concerned about this practice. As early as the 1780s, they were protesting against non-Indigenous men gaining land through marriage and were doing everything possible to prevent it. In 1812 alone, they physically intervened to prevent at least two white men from entering the Gahnawage church, where they intended to marry Gahnawage women, precisely because of the threat these men posed to Gahnawage sovereignty if they were granted land rights through marriage. Ten years later, the newly hired Indian agent, Nicholas Benjamin Doucette, mentioned growing frustration and unrest regarding this problem. In his view, preventing white men from gaining land rights through marriage was legally justified, given that the Royal Proclamation of 1763 prohibited the establishment of non-Indigenous people among Indians. The 1828 Darling Report noted repeated complaints about white people living in Gahnawage who sold liquor. Gahnawage chiefs had difficulty ejecting white people without the cooperation of the colonial government, which rarely intervened to expel anyone, so these problems continued to fester. Whereas many Gahnawage Hironu wanted to find expedient ways of evicting white people, the colonial government took an ambiguous stance on the question. Through its agent, the Indian Department exerted significant control over who could live on the territory, but it had no defined or consistent rules regarding who was an Indian and who was not. In reality, it often issued residency permits on the basis of personal favors, and it rarely forced people to leave once they had settled. In 1835, white people reportedly held 188 acres in the unconceded part of the seigneury, but of course, there was disagreement as to whom the label white could be applied. That year, the chiefs petitioned the newly appointed governor general, 
Lord Gosford, to have these people removed and their lands returned to the nation. They described the white landholders as bad birds with black hearts who use honeyed and bewitching words to turn the heads of the people. In response, they were told that since the suppression of the Jesuit order, the crown was now the true owner of the seigneury, and thus any conflict should be brought before the courts. Later, the Indian Department would do everything possible to keep land conflicts from going to court. And the courts, in any case, often referred cases involving Gahnawa Gehronu back to the department because of the irregularities in land ownership in Gahnawage. Thus began the problem of regulating membership in Gahnawage, a problem deeply rooted in colonial interference and one that remains acute today. Gahnawage leaders, who under ideal circumstances embodied the will of the community, wanted to maintain the power to include and exclude people based on their laws. As the 19th century wore on, the Indian Department became increasingly involved in this issue by intervening to prevent white people from living in Gahnawage, but also by protecting certain people from expulsion once they had established themselves there. Without any particular legislation to support its actions or explicit agreement from Gahnawage leaders, the department became an arbiter of membership questions. It sometimes used this power to support the decisions of chiefs, but could also use it to block their path or to prevent any action. Conflicts in the 1830s Not all conflicts during this period were concerned with questions of citizenship and belonging, but many were. One particular conflict boiled over in 1833 and 1834, when Bernard St. Germain, the department interpreter, tried to have the ferry license held by George de Lorimier, son of Claude de Lorimier, revoked and given to a man named Gonerat Dahare, Ignace de Lille. St. Germain argued that de Lorimier should be expelled from Gahnawage because he was not a member of the nation and should not have Gahnawage rights. Father Marcoux defended de Lorimier, and the recently hired Indian agent, James Hughes, backed St. Germain and Gonerat Dahare. In an unprecedented move, Hughes used his influence to have all chiefs deposed who would not oppose de Lorimier. According to Marcoux, this was the first time that the colonial government had interfered in the nomination of Gahnawage chiefs. The remaining chiefs, now unanimously allied with Hughes, petitioned against Marcoux, complaining that he was not acting in the best interests of the people because he sided with white men, such as Delorimier. They also petitioned against the presence of white people in general. According to them, peace would be restored in the village only when all its white residents were removed, their property was returned to the nation, and Gahnawage laws enforced. In December 1834, the Supreme Court of Montreal ruled that Delorimier was an Indian, and thus he was able to keep his ferry license. Despite the ruling, however, and probably due to the influence of Hughes, the Indian Department cancelled his annual presence. It would soon abandon the practice of annual gift-giving altogether, but at the time, every citizen of the nation was eligible. The following year, Hughes found a way to get the ferry license transferred to Canada Dahere and to open an official inquiry into the conduct of Marcoux, 
who was later acquitted. Agent Robert McNabb, who investigated the question of white people in Gahnawage, concluded that the McCumber and Delormier families, among others, had no right to Gahnawage land and no legal status as Gahnawage Indians. The battle between Hughes and Marcoux continued into 1836, with Hughes compiling a list of 61 white people in the village and Marcoux claiming that there were fewer than 10, none of whom had taken any land. Marcoux went on to say that everyone in Gahnawage was of mixed ancestry and that white people and half-breeds had been sauvagifiés, made savage, made Indian, in any case. In 1836, the majority of the chiefs sent another petition asking for the removal of white people and for the formalization of a law forbidding the sale or lease of land to non-Indians. The white people in question, including the Macumber and Delormier families, counter-petitioned. After the upheavals of the 1837-1838 rebellions, the tide turned in favor of the Marcoux-Delormier faction, but only briefly. First, the chiefs remove Gonerat Dahere, the Hughes-backed ferry operator, from the council. Then they reconciled with Marcoux and Delorimier and petitioned against Hughes and his allies in the village. The colonial government held another inquiry, this time into the behavior of Hughes. It found in his favor and recommended the removal of Marcoux and Delorimier. In 1840, 44 Gahnawage apparently fed up with the entire situation, sent a petition that criticized both factions. They opposed Gonerat-Dahre and blamed Delorimier and Marcoux for stirring up trouble. Around the same time, at least two other petitions were launched, calling for the removal of white people, one stating the primary concern as wood, the other as land. The summer of 1840 saw a final inquiry, which acquitted Marcoux, and in December 1840, the faction signed a peace agreement. Hughes and St. Germain were transferred to positions in which they would have no further contact with Gahnawage, and a membership agreement was reached that all children of Indian women would be considered Indian, regardless of the identity of their father. This solution would have appealed to those who valued and supported Rodinashuni matrilinealism, and it was also agreeable to the descendants of white men like Macumber and Delorimier, who had married Gahnawage women. However, many Gahnawage Hronu continued to worry about white men and their children gaining Gahnawage rights via marriage. The Indian Department recognized that the clashes concerning citizenship or membership in Gahnawage were really often disputes over land. Thus, in 1839, near the end of the Hughes-Marcoux struggle, it offered to solve the entire problem by having the territory subdivided among families. The department argued that regular lots of 30 to 50 arpents, properly surveyed, would prevent conflicts because land would be more equally and securely held. The chiefs rejected this proposal, not because they had a distaste for private property or because they opposed it in principle. They simply did not see it as feasible, and they did not believe that it would ultimately benefit either the community or the young men who would gain possession. 
Nevertheless, the idea of subdividing the territory simmered for decades in the files and minds of Ottawa officials, surfacing again in the 1870s and 1880s. Chapter 6 Conclusion In 1848, James Duncan, a Montreal painter, spent some time in Gahnawage, where he produced two watercolors. In contrast to the tumultuous picture of Gahnawage presented in much of this book, they portray the village as quiet and calm. One shows the church in the background, while in the foreground are several houses, fences, and two Gahnawage Hironu in traditional clothing having a conversation. The other presents a vista of the village, with a defunct mill in the foreground along with two figures. Both watercolors depict a peaceful place that seems a world away from the hustle and bustle of Montreal. Many visitors describe the village in similar terms, and there is reason to believe that its daily life was generally peaceful and calm. Kaknawaga was out of the beaten track, wrote the Jesuit historian E.J. Devine. Strangers were rarely seen, and the native population were far enough away from the contaminating crowd to enable them to live their lives in peace and quiet. A comparable sentiment comes through in the writings of mid-century visitor John H. Hansen, whose book The Lost Prince contended that the Dauphin had escaped the French Revolution and had taken refuge in an indigenous village, perhaps even Gahnawage. Hansen described Gahnawage thus, Kaknawaga is a straggling Indian village on the St. Lawrence, opposite Lachine, and within sight of Montreal. It consists, besides a number of scattered huts, of two long, narrow streets varying considerably in width. The houses are low and shabby, most of them of wood, but some of dark stone. The masonry is of the rudest kind, a Roman Catholic church, a solid stone building, of some slight pretensions to architecture, stands in the middle of one of the streets. In looking at the dingy houses, the narrow streets, the crowd of little Indian children, and considering the loneliness of the spot in former years before railroads and steamboats had brought it into connection with the busy world, one cannot help feeling how secure a hiding place for a poor scion of royalty this village presented. Even as Hansen described the loneliness of the spot as a perfect hiding place for a fugitive royal, he noted that it was a thing of the past. The quiet and isolation would end with the arrival of railways and steamboats. Gahnawage Hironu may have had a sense that things were about to change. In 1848, the year that James Duncan painted the village, Gahnawage residents believed that it had been invaded by evil spirits, and local medicine men could not eject them. What the spirits were said to be doing is not entirely clear, but Gahnawage Hironu felt that the problem was serious enough to expend public funds on bringing in a Mississauga medicine man. After spending some time in the community, he claimed to have killed the spirits and left, but they returned soon after. Gahnawage then sent a delegation to Onondaga, a Rudinersuni nation that had resisted Christianity for a long time. There, the delegation found a medicine man who was willing to come to Gahnawage. He visited in 1851 and was apparently able to solve the problem by suggesting that a certain possessed young woman be married. 
more qualified people than I can unpack the spiritual meanings of this incident, but it certainly suggests that Gahnawage was not as Christian as many settler narratives assumed. And it also points to the continuing relationships with other Rudinashuni communities. But in the context of this chapter, I see the event as an indication that Gahnawage Hironu felt something was deeply amiss or that big changes were afoot. First Nations across the region were facing major land losses and other setbacks. Gahnawage Hironu would have heard how settler governments broke treaty agreements and undermined the sovereignty of Six Nations of the Grand River, Tayandanega, and many other communities. Thousands of land-hungry settlers were arriving every year, often squatting on lands the Crown had allocated for Indigenous people, and colonial governments did little to protect Indigenous lands from this onslaught. The reorientation of the Indian Department from nation-to-nation relationships to a civilizing agenda was, in practice, a severe blow to Indigenous communities. The department severely cut spending on annuities, choosing instead to pay the salaries of missionaries and teachers, most of whom were white, all while working to frame and categorize indigeneity within colonial conceptions of race. At the same time, the city of Montreal was on the cusp of its own industrial revolution, with the requisite demographic explosion, all of which would deeply affect nearby Gahnawage. An especially important early impact was the construction of one of Canada's first railways, which ran through Gahnawage, with a terminus and ferry dock in the village itself. I opened this chapter with a quotation from Joseph Bouchette that articulates his unshakable faith in human progress, while also expressing his certainty that Indigenous people would not take part in it. Not all colonial elites shared his pessimism, but by the mid-19th century, most agreed that Indigenous people were doomed in some way. Civilization, by way of education, agriculture, and Christianity, became the new organizing principle for a genocidal program that would persist into the next century. The following chapters show some of the ways in which Gahnawage experienced this new orientation and the growing power and intrusiveness of settler governments.